Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chigo Live Ready, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we have the opportunity to reflect deeper into Christopher West's work, Fill These Hearts, which is a series of reflections into John Paul II's uh, Theology of the Body. We are in this last section titled Destiny, and in this last chapter titled To Infinity and Beyond. So we really have... Just a couple weeks left. I know last week I had mentioned that Chris and Derek would be with me this week, but it looks like they will be with me next week, which will work out just fine because they will be with me probably in our last week of this book. So it'll be good to have them with me reflecting, summarizing um, the insights and wisdom of Christopher West. So uh, with that, let us just jump back into the book. Uh, if you have your book out there, page 165. So this subsection that we will start with is titled, I Has Not Seen. And here he opens up, of course, with 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. <clears throat> so what can we say here, huh? I mean, we know heavenly bliss and fulfillment are beyond all understanding and description. This means that all our earthly images are woefully inadequate. And yet, if we are in touch with the uh, shape of our infinite yearning, we can gain some dim sense of the fulfillment we hope for. We don't know what it will be, but we know unless existence is cruel, that fulfillment of our deepest desires must be possible, even if not in this life. To paraphrase uh, C.S. Lewis here, if we find in our desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, it will only make sense that we are made for another world. Hence, we can describe heaven as a known unknown. Uh, Benedict chimes in here, I think, for an important insight. Uh, the term eternal life is meant to give a name to this known unknown. Inevitably, Benedict says, it's an inadequate term that creates confusion. What does he mean? Well, think about it. We use the word eternal, and what do we intend to mean when we use it? Huh? The word eternal suggests something like the unending succession of days on the calendar, huh? And how about the term life? What does that mean? Well, the term life makes us think of our existence here and now. So for Benedict XVI, he makes the point, for many, to think of the toil of this life continuing eternally seems more like a curse than a gift, a point he makes in his encyclical Saved in Hope. So then he poses the question, how then are we to understand the term eternal life? Benedict insists that it is not an unending succession of days on the calendar, but something more like the supreme moment of satisfaction in which totality embraces us and we embrace totality. Think about that. 
I love that definition. I'll read that again. This is Benedict XVI in Saved in Hope. Eternal life is not an unending succession of days on the calendar, but something more like the supreme moment of satisfaction in which totality embraces us and we embrace totality. Huh? And as Benedict continues to explain, this supreme moment of satisfaction, however, is a moment in which time, the before and after, no longer exists. It is an infinity of satisfaction that plunges us, Benedict continues, into the ocean of infinite love, a plunging ever new into the vastness of being in which we are simply overwhelmed with joy. We must think along these lines, Benedict maintains, if we are to understand the object of Christian hope, to understand what it is that our faith, our being with Christ, leads us to expect. Beautiful, beautiful. Again, that's uh, saved in hope. You can go to that encyclical, that document online, paragraphs 10, 11, 12. Read it for yourselves. Beautiful. Now, let us return to the frame of the biblical narrative. The Bible begins with what? But the earthly marriage of man and woman, and it ends with what? but the heavenly marriage of Christ and the church. You see, my friends, if our ultimate destiny is a fulfillment of eros in nuptial union with the divine, and if the nuptials of earth are only a little glimmer of that, it makes sense that Christ says in Matthew 22, verse 30, we are no longer given in marriage in the life to come. When eros, lowercase e, is fulfilled in uppercase e, eros, earthly marriage and sexual union will have served their purpose. And as Christopher West reminds us, <laughs> you no longer need a sign to point you to heaven when you're in heaven, huh? You know, what does Paul say about the virtues of faith, hope, and love? He's talking about them, he compares them, and he says, the greatest of these virtues is what? Love. Why would he say the greatest of the moral virtues, the greatest of these gifts that are given to us in baptism is love? Well, will we need faith in heaven? Will we need hope in heaven? No. But in heaven, will we abide eternally in love? Yes. Consequently, Paul says, the greatest of these is love. Beautiful. Now, does this mean that our earthly marriage is simply deleted? No. It means earthly marriage will somehow be fulfilled and completed in the eternal marriage of Christ and the church. Huh? When you read Theology of the Body and go back into John Paul II's writings, he talks about this virginal reality. Huh? He talks about this Christian teaching that describes this virginal reality. What is he talking about here? Is he talking about uh, the absence of union? No, but the perfection of union. The virginal reality, as John Paul II would talk about it, and as Christopher West explains, is a union untouched by the distortions of sin and lust, a union completely beyond the distortions of sin and lust. Indeed, 
beyond anything we have known in this life, and yet somehow not alien to what we have known in this life. This is why, my dear friends, in the consummative act, we find ourselves so close to heaven. Huh? We find ourselves reaching for the stars, reaching for what lies beyond the stars. So, virginal then here also refers to the perfect integrity of body and soul. Let us keep in mind something, that Christianity itself, no matter what faith you belong to, professes belief not only in some spiritual afterlife, but also in the what? Resurrection of the body. The Catechism of the Catholic Church explains this uh, beautifully in paragraph 996. On no point does the Christian faith encounter more opposition than on the resurrection of the body. It is commonly accepted that the life of the human person continues in a spiritual fashion after death. But how can we believe that this body, so clearly mortal, could rise to eternal life? Clearly, after we die, our bodies return to dust. But is it beyond God to gather that dust once again and breathe his life into it? This is the astounding claim of the Christian faith. Our bodies will be raised up and clothed with immortality. And that's paragraph 996, and uh, you also heard echoes of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54. And so it is. Nothing of our authentic humanity is deleted. What does this mean? Well, this means our sexuality also continues in some way in the next life, huh? We will be raised male and female. Only this time the divine design for sexuality will be fulfilled in what John Paul II calls the virginal marriage of Christ and the church, which includes the everlasting union of all who respond to the wedding invitation of heaven, which of course should bring us to a deeper understanding and appreciation of the saints, huh? <laughs> because if anyone who has shown us how to live this out faithfully, whether it be in the sacrament of marriage or as a religious or as a priest, it is the saint. As Christopher West notes here, the eternal consummation and love of all God's sons and daughters is what Christian tradition has called the communion of saints. If you were to flip to paragraph 1045 in your catechism, it reads, For man, this consummation will be the final realization of the unity of the human race, which God willed from creation. Those who are united with Christ will form the community of the redeemed, the holy city of God, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Amen to that. So in essence, the unity that God willed from creation was revealed in our bodies as male and female and the call of the two to spousal union. And somehow, in a mysterious way, beyond anything we can think or imagine, all that is masculine in our humanity will be in union with all that is what? Feminine in our humanity. And that one organic union of humanity will be the one body, the one virgin bride of Christ in union with him forever. 
This is the richness of what comes to us from John Paul II's vision of theology of the body. As Christopher West explains, through this union with Christ, we will be taken up into the ecstasy of the eternal union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together in one universal celebration. Christopher West goes on, we will all be intoxicated on God's holy wine, dancing forever in celebration of God's perfect love within the Trinity, God's perfect love for us, our perfect love for Him, and our perfect love for one another. And think about that. I love that piece from Christopher West. Together, in one universal celebration, we will all be intoxicated on God's holy wine, dancing forever in celebration of God's perfect love within the Trinity, God's perfect love for us, our perfect love for Him, and our perfect love for one another. You know, to talk about this and to appreciate it for what it is, especially in light of male, female, masculinity, femininity, Christ and the church, is to once again talk about the importance of complementarity, huh? When we talk about the complementarity of male and female and masculinity and femininity, we are also talking about the complementarity between Christ and his church. I don't know if we have uh, emphasized that point enough. Huh? that there exists this deep complementarity between Christ and his church. Again, when we think about complementarity, what do we think about? Huh? Maybe we think about colors. What do complementary colors look like when they are not seen in light of each other? Well, we probably look at it and say, maybe something's missing. Huh? We can draw that analogy to so many different things that are complementary. When you start talking about Christ and the church, certainly one should always be seen in light of the other. And when they are, what is complementary comes into focus. And there is a rich beauty to it. And this we are made to contemplate. Remember what the word contemplation means. It comes from the Latin contemplatio, to look at something. But when you're contemplating something, you are what? You are reflecting into the mystery of it, right? You just don't look at something. No, but you look into it, through it beyond it, appreciating its kind of 3D dimension. We are made to contemplate the wonder and the beauty that is the complementarity of Christ and his church. And when we do that, we begin to appreciate the richness of what Christopher West is talking about and as a whole, what theology of the body is all about. Okay, so in the words of Christopher West once again, <laughs> We are indeed created for a, a holy kind of inebriation where we drink from the font of this great Trinitarian love that exists for us, a love that he just wants to pour into our hearts. He thirsts for our souls, and we need to open them up so that he can fill us up with the richness of his love. Now, that being said, the enemy has something to say about all of this, right? What does the enemy do? The enemy takes these truths of God's creation and twists them into a gross distortion of what actually is. The good news is that Christ came to undo the work of the devil. The more deeply we enter into Christ's death and resurrection, the more we are able to reclaim the glorious truths that have 
that have been twisted and distorted by the enemy's lies. Indeed, my friends, we must reclaim the pleasures the devil plagiarizes by enduring the painful purification that enables genuine pleasures to blossom in their true holy expression. If we can do that, we are sure to catch a glimpse of what awaits us in heaven. You know, as we are reflecting into Christopher West, I am made to think um, over the past few months, my wife and I have gone to uh, our share of weddings, and I am always overwhelmed by the way in which everyone just appreciates what a wedding day is all about, huh? I mean, if you were to think about it critically, why do we love weddings so much, huh? Why especially uh, do we love to see the bride coming down the aisle? I have taken note in these weddings that I have gone to, everyone turning to the bride and everyone sharing in this great mystery, everyone glowing, and uh, most everyone, all the women for sure, crying, huh? <laughs> What's going on there? I mean, why do we love to look upon the bride coming down the aisle? Why do fairy tales so often end with a newly married couple living happily ever after? As Christopher West notes, maybe, just maybe, weddings tap into a deep primordial intuition we have of our destiny, huh? of the ultimate fulfillment of Eros in a fairy tale wedding that is actually no fairy tale, huh? Isn't that funny? You ever thought about that before? That the whole idea of having a fairy tale wedding is really not a fairy tale, but what awaits us all? How can we be so sure? Is this not a divine promise that Jesus gives us when he says, Lo, I will be with you always? Amen. You know, if you were to turn to the end of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have these abbreviated apocalyptic discourses where Christ is talking about the end times. I am coming soon. But we don't have it in the book of John. Why is that? Well, <laughs> so important it is to John that he sets aside a whole book for it in the book of Revelation. Why do I bring this up? The happily ever after is what is presented in the book of Revelation, huh? A bride coming down the aisle adorned for her husband. It's the vision of a new heaven and a new earth in which God wipes away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more, we are promised, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. What does Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 to 4 remind us? For the former things have passed away, and everything is made new. Brothers and sisters, if this heavenly vision of things is real, then as Christopher West reminds us, it sure takes a lot of pressure off of sexual love and romance to fulfill us, does it not? <laughs> no, for some of us, the primary reason we get disillusioned in romantic relationship is because we're expecting them to do what only God can do. We talked about this last week. And what is that? Heal the ache. When we go to the physical and emotional pleasures of sex and romantic love, seeking the definitive fulfillment of Eros, what have we done? Have we not mistaken the shadow for the reality? Huh? In light of this, Christopher West shares a uh, striking story. 
A modern mystic nun, after giving a presentation in which she shared something of her experience of nuptial union with God, was rebuked by an agnostic psychologist. You're sick, he insisted. What you really want is sex. But you're disguising your desire for sex with all this ridiculous talk about union with God. The nun responded firmly, Oh no, I beg to differ. What the world really wants is union with God, but it's disguising that desire with all this ridiculous sex. And as Christopher West poses the question, <laughs> who do you think was right? I mean, if the vision of desire and happiness that theology of the body lays out is real, then maybe those Christians who take up Christ's invitation to forego marriage for the sake of the kingdom of God, as Matthew 19, 12 talks about it, are not in fact missing out on the most promising prospect of happiness life has to offer. Now, we probably have not talked about this enough in our many reflections into theology of the body. You see, maybe instead, they're showing the rest of the world those celibates, where ultimate happiness truly lies. And where is that? Simply in union with God. The church has always taught that celibacy for the kingdom is not a declaration, as some, if not many, may think that sex is bad. It's a declaration that while sex can be great, there's something even better, infinitely better, in so many ways. My dear friends, we can say that Christian celibacy is a bold declaration that heaven is real and it is worth selling everything to possess. Have you ever stopped to consider the many, many men and women who have turned their lives over to God and for God to serve Him? Have you ever thought about what they were actually turning over and how it might be a sign of something so much greater for us? That can be a powerful, powerful reflection. Now, of course, as we say this, we must distinguish between the wise and the unwise virgins that uh, we read about in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 to 13. The unwise are who? Those who have no oil for their lamps. Their hearts are cold, we can say. The fire of Eros has been repressed. It was some weeks ago where we were talking about uh, Father Cantalamesa and his reflection on love titled Two Faces of Love. It is in that work that Father Cantalamesa observes, if the affections and desires of the heart connected with Eros are systematically denied or repressed in the name of celibacy, the result will be double. And this is a huge point. Either one goes on in a tired way out of a sense of duty to defend one's image, or more or less licit compensations are sought to the point of the very painful cases that are afflicting the church today. Striking. That's Father Cantalamesa. The wise virgins, on the other hand, have a full supply of oil, and we can properly say their hearts are set on fire. They do not repress the eros we have been talking about. Rather, what do they do? They allow their eros to become what it truly is, a pure, burning, wild, aching longing for God. Amen to that. 
Interestingly, one of the most famous images depicting a wise virgin with her lamp on fire is Bernini's marble statue of Teresa of Avila. And Bernini invites us to contemplate uh, the mystical experience that Teresa herself described. Listen to these words that come to us from St. Teresa of Avila. I saw an angel beside me, so blazing with light that he seemed to be one of the very highest angels who appear all on fire. I saw in his hands a long spear of gold, and at the end of the iron there seemed to be a little fire. This I thought he thrust through my heart several times so deeply that it reached my very entrails. As he withdrew it, I thought it brought them with it and left me all burning with the great love of God. So great was the pain that it made me moan and so utter the sweetness that there was no wanting it to stop, nor is there any contending the soul with less than God. What is going on here? Well, as Christopher West talks about it, he clearly Teresa speaks of this agonizing ecstasy as something spiritual, though the body has a share in it, huh? She insists, indeed, a great share. It is a caressing of love so sweet, she says, that if anyone thinks I am lying, I beseech God in his goodness to give him the same experience. Wow. And rightfully so, my dear friends. It is an experience that God wants to share with all of us in some fashion, anyway. While it may be true that relatively few experience this level of divine ecstasy in this life, something like this, and far beyond it we can say, is destined to be ours for eternity if we say yes to God's marriage proposal, huh? Remember what we talked about in the opening, that passage from 1 Corinthians 2, 9, no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor heart conceived what God has prepared for those who, what, love him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must love him. We must cry out with the psalmist, my soul yearns and pines for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Psalm 84, 2. How about Psalm 42? My soul is thirsting for God. When can I enter and see his face? Brothers and sisters, it's a cry that passes through the prayer of agony, but leads to ecstasy. Brothers and sisters, is this not something beautiful? Let us go before our Lord on bending knee and ask for all the graces necessary that we might encounter him in such a way that indeed he has raptured our heart. Not that faith is reduced to experience, but no, in light of faith, we might experience something divine. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, 
The website is joeholcraft.org.